my name is John Thomas and I'm a crops, the crops extension educator out in Box Butte County out way out west, up in kind of the northern, I work mostly in the northern part of the panhandle. And um, I've been working with dryable beans, uh, mostly with my on-farm research. And um, I've been doing a lot of, a lot of studies on um, bean population. And um, this year I worked in an, an inoculant study as well. And so I'm just gonna be going over several studies here that I, that I was able to do this, this past year. So I've been working quite a bit with, with what's called direct harvest of dryable beans. And that's uh, like most people are familiar with like, like soybeans, a combine just moves through the field and, and harvests them and you're done. Well, uh, traditionally dryable beans aren't harvested that way out here. There's a, a cutting windrowing process a drying process and then a combine comes through and uh, harvests that windrow. But in, the, in about the last 10 years, uh, the, the direct harvest of dry edible beans has increased from about 5%, probably up to 20 to 25%. So anyway, I, uh, most of my on-farm research studies uh, incorporate the direct harvest methodology. So that's what, that's what I'll be presenting here, some of those. So I, I'll start off with uh, some population studies that I, that I was able to do in 2020. There's uh, this study was in Morrill County. There's a lot of information on this slide, but I'll just highlight a couple of things. It was planted on May 29th. We harvested it on September 14th. It was planted in 20 inch rows with a, with a deer Maximerge planter. Now the, the variety of bean was the, a vibrant pinto bean and we did four applications. Uh, that there was a, it was a no-till uh, field and the, the field was rolled after planting, which is somewhat common with, with dryable beans and indirect harvest. So you get a good, a good smooth surface. Uh, the crop was desiccated on September 2nd. And a lot of times that's pretty common with the direct harvest of dryable beans to get everything to, to, to finish out and be done also to deal with weeds. Uh, just a, a quick shot of the, the planting map of, of that field three different populations that we'll be looking at. So looking at the data, our target populations were 60,000, 100,000, and 130,000 plants per acre. But based on early season stand counts, um, our actual populations that we ended up with were 46,000, 66, and about 85,000. Those are those are below, you know, as you can see, our target populations. Um, but it's, you know, we work with what we had and uh, we'll present the data accordingly. Um, I go in and look at pod heights at harvest time. And um, there was significant difference you can see in this column. I don't know if you can see my arrow or not, but in this particular column, there are significant differences in each of the populations. Uh, which is fairly fairly common. A lot of times the, the pod heights are, are, are higher in the higher populations due to some competition in the beans. Our, our yields um, were kind of kind of matched out according to the populations with the low population at 33.9 bushel per acre significantly different than 
than the high and the mid populations. Marginal net returns uh, were also accordingly, the, the lower population uh, significantly less than, than the higher population in this particular study. We can see your cursor if you wanna use it. Oh, can, can you see it moving around? Okay. Yep. Good. This is a, this is, well, the Terra Avion went, <laughs> that company went broke in the middle of the, the season, but I did happen to get some image imagery from them. And um, so the, the vertical stripes here are the, the different populations are representing the different popula uh, populations in this field. And this was on July 25th. On August 7th, uh, you can still see that, see the striping, um, but we never got full row closure in this, on this particular field. And that's, you know, important for weed management and, you know, you get your better yields when the crop really fills and takes advantage of all the space. So we never did get row closure in this particular field. And this, this is going along with the, the data set that I just showed you. And incidentally, the yields were not very good in this particular, in this particular study. I'm gonna show you this and it's, it's about a 30 second view of a season long field growth. And I'm gonna click it on here to run, hopefully it'll run. And it's, it starts from bean emergence and it will go all the way, well, it's gonna go all the way through the establishment of a cover crop. But I want you to note uh, that we never did get row closure in this field. And the weeds really came on strong. As you can see, uh, some Palmer amaranth out there as well. That's becoming a more of a significant issue in, in our area. And until then we har were harvested there in September and our cover crop is in which was winter wheat and um, right through a the first snow. So that was just a, a snapshot of that field demonstrating that the, the rows didn't close and weed pressure, et cetera. Moving on to a second study. Uh, this one was in Box Butte County. Um, planting date, May 26th, harvested September 19th. It was also planted uh, planted with a 20-inch planter. Sometimes our our um, direct our direct harvested beans are drilled, and so I think the planter does a better job of getting a better a better stand out there. The variety here was Lumen. There was four replications. Uh, the previous crop here was sugar beets, and then it was ripped with a no-till ripper, uh, and then rolled, uh, or then uh, with a roller harrow, and then it was rolled after planting. And it, this one was also desiccated on September 12th. A quick snapshot of the field of, of the planter image. Okay, looking at this data, same target population, 60, 100, and 130,000. Again, our, our actual populations were quite a bit lower than that. They weren't as low as the last study, but it, we were at about 52, 82 in, a, in a almost 107,000 plants per acre. We did have a significant difference in pod height. Um, and by the way, the reason I take that measurement is it, it makes a difference uh, when you look at harvest loss. If you get your pods too close to the ground, you, you end up getting significant harvest loss. Our yields here uh, were, were all significantly different across the populations from uh, 
53 bushel per acre uh, to 59 bushel per acre um, with, with the, the better yield in the higher population. And in our, in our marginal net returns uh, also were accordingly with the, with the, with the better yields. This is an image of that field um, and that uh, you can see the, the horizontal stripes are the different is the low population uh, in, in that particular study. Here on August 7th, you can still faintly see horizontal stripes, but we got a really good row closure uh, in, in this particular study. Weed pre pressure was less and the, the population or the yields were uh, quite a bit better than that, the previous study that we just looked at. Um, we did, a grower wanted to look at dry, dryable bean inoculation this year or this past season. And so we did that. And uh, this would be the first year I've ever looked at that. Most, most growers do not inoculate their dry edible beans. Uh, there's enough uh, natural inoculum out there and uh, so forth that it's not, it's not normally considered necessary, but he, he wanted to see if it helped him any. So uh, planted June 5th, harvested September 22nd. This, this one was drilled in 15 inch rows and the pinto bean variety here was Torreon. And the, the inoculant was called Vertison N-Charge. And it was put on at 2.5 ounces for 50 pounds. And it was just dry incorporated in the planter box. Now is how, is how that inoculum was put, put on. And this is the, the scientific name for that inoculum. And I won't even try to pronounce that. This is the product here. Just a, a shot of the bag. It's kind of interesting. This study, um, the the looking at the stand counts out there, uh, the target population was going to be around a, a desire to be around a hundred thousand, but the inoculated uh, treatment was only at ninety one thousand uh, plants per acre. And the non-inoculated was at 102, 880,000 plants per acre. So I do not know why, you know, the, the population was impacted in this way, but that's, that's, what we, that's what we saw. And I would like to, we're planning on doing this study, you know, a few more times just to see different years, different conditions, uh, why things might be happening. Apart from the, the stand, there was no significant difference across the entire study. Um, whoops. Numerically, the, the, the non-inoculated, it wasn't significant, but it, numerically it, it yielded just a touch better than the, the inoculated. So in marginal, the marginal net return uh, was not significantly different. So this was just a couple snapshots of, of putting that study in. Okay, um, the next two studies didn't turn out in terms of harvesting things for, for usable data, but um, I'm gonna present them because I think there's some valuable information here anyway. This, uh, this particular study was uh, planted on May 29th 
Um, there was actually some planting difficulties. So that planting strung out for several days before we finally got it in. It didn't get harvested till into November because of a very serious weed issue. Um, this was actually planted in a, in a twin row configuration. In, uh, Cowboy Pinto was the variety, four applications. And uh, it was grazed and then there was vertical tillage um, it was planted then rolled like some of the other studies I mentioned. Okay, a pre-emergent herbicide was put down on June 3rd. Uh, Roundup, uh, AIM, and dual magnum. Then it, it was the incorporation method for that herbicide was going to be the, the, the pivot to water it in. Well, it didn't all get watered in before a severe wind event on June 6th. I mean, a, a, a very, it was a kind of wind that blew roofs off of homes and uh, knocked down tree rows and power and everything. It was very severe. Well, we think it essentially with, uh, with dust and residue removed the herbicide from the field. And uh, thus the, in particularly the part of the field that didn't get uh, watered after the, the pre-emergent herbicide, um, Terrible, uh, terrible, terrible weeds. So a, po a post application, herbicide application was put on um, on June 26th. And um, anyway, the weeds were so bad that we couldn't even distinguish anything at harvest time. It was a, it was a disaster, actually. Quick snapshot of planting that study. Now here is a, here is a, snap a picture of the crop after it had the post-emergent herbicide. And um, you can see that it, it dinged the, you know, the weeds there are dinged. But as you can see here on August 17th, uh, they were not killed. And, and there's beans or there was weeds in this field, uh, you know, up to, up to my chin, five foot tall. It was terrible, including, uh, you know, kosher pigweed. Uh, there was some Palmer amaranth here as well. And here's a, sh a shot of some of the weeds. There's some Palmer amaranth and, and then harvesting it on November, uh, November 6th. 23 bushel per acre, which is a, a really poor dryable bean yield. Just a real quick shot of a combine header you know, handling really heavy weeds. Um, these the combine did a did a lot better job than I expected it. Uh, moving moving a lot of weeds through. Okay, another another population study. This was done further north up in Sheridan County. This this study did not come to harvest in terms of harvest data either. And um, again, I just thought there was a, a, good, um, a good lesson here. This, this grower, uh, let's see, planted June 4th, harvested middle of October. This was drilled in 10 inch rows. This was a great Northern field. Um, this, hold on. This grower, opted not to put a pre-emergent herbicide on. That was, his, that was his choice. He put on a post herbicide application of, of Raptor Bassigran 
he put out a rescue treatment uh, later in July to try to salvage his field. And later he even went in with a rope wick uh, with gramoxone late in the season to try to manage the weeds for, you know, for a hopeful harvest. But uh, here's, a, here's early July. You can just see that things are really getting out of hand. August 17th over here on the right. Uh, this was after the rope wick with gramoxone. What we, what we noticed is, is it, it, did, it just killed the part of the weeds it touched. Killed the tops of the weeds, but the bottoms were, were uh, still you know, thriving. So then uh, later to, to, com to combine this, it's swathed and you can just see these huge windrows of weeds and you know, there's some beans incorporated in there. But so he did, he did get some beans, uh, significant, significantly reduced harvest, but the study was un unsalvageable. Anyway, the, the take home message here of those, those two studies is that the pre-emergent herbicide was critical and they just had disasters uh, without those in place. I'm just gonna uh, briefly go over a kind of a summary of, of some of my population studies for the last several years. Um, for beans planted in 10 studies over the previous four years with population differences ranging from 27,000 to 56,000, only three studies had significant yield differences with the greatest yields in the higher population. Only one study had a significantly different marginal net return and it was in the high population in the study with the lowest population difference. So in these previous year's studies, I was really seeing that some of those lower populations were performing quite nicely and, and yielding competitively with the higher populations. This year we had, we didn't have as good of growing conditions. We had a, a much hotter, more stressful flowering period, which, which hurt our yields. And so uh, in this year, the higher populations yielded the best and had the best marginal net returns. Although, as I mentioned earlier, uh, because of some planter issues, we, we just weren't getting the populations that we desire. We, our low populations were way too low and our and I didn't get up to that 130,000 population that I wanted to see for my high population. So I need to look at this some more and I, I wanna look at this some more, but my kind of my overriding theme and pattern that I think I'm seeing is that the growers are gonna be, can reduce their seeding rates and save money while, um, while maintaining competitive yields. And so, you know, thus, thus saving some, some money I, I want to look a little bit more at the inoculant study. I can't draw a whole lot of conclusions from just one year. So, so just uh, briefly revisiting this concept of, of direct harvesting beans instead of uh, cutting and windrowing them and, and going that more traditional method. Uh, some of the advantages of direct harvest are that there's fewer harvest operations. Um, you can't find good labor on those early morning for those early morning cutting operations. Uh, you avoid risk from wind or rain after cutting. Those windrows are, are really vulnerable and can blow away and there can be all kinds of problems. Uh, you don't disturb the soil as much. I don't know why that keeps. Uh, you don't disturb the soil as much and uh, you get less soil through the combine. So why isn't everyone direct harvesting? 
Uh, well, it takes a little longer to get the crop out of the field. You have to wait till a little later in the season. Uh, you need to learn a new production system. You might need to buy a, a different combine head. Maybe your neighbor has had a disaster with direct harvest. Uh, you can't cultivate to control weeds. A lot of times the rows are narrower and you really don't want to kick up any, 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 kind of, any kind of ridging or something that will hold that header up and create harvest loss. Uh, you may need to plant more seeds per acre. That's, you know, some of my population says actually I'm finding that maybe they can get away with less seeds per acre. Uh, but the total harvest loss is, will normally be higher. Uh, two to three bushel per acre uh, for, for direct harvest versus one to two bushel per acre for, for traditional harvest. So you have to weigh the, the pluses and the minuses. Very critical to have a, uh, the correct plant architecture. You need an upright type uh, plant architecture. The type one dry bean architecture is more of a, is a, a bush uh, upright architecture like this, it'd be your kidneys and cranberry beans. Type two architecture is an indeterminate bush and that includes the great northerns and the pintos and that, that those are acceptable for direct harvest. But the type three are an indeterminate prostrate type of bean. They lay on the ground. Uh, you can get great northerns and pintos with, with that uh, plant architecture and you really want to avoid those if you're planning on direct harvesting. You need to have a a decent upright bean. This is just an example of, you know, with an actual two by four, a, a two inch dimensional board out there of a lot of pods less than two inches. You would, you would really have a serious harvest loss in this scenario, uh, as opposed to beans at harvest time that are holding their, their pods uh, significantly above two inches. As you are combining, it's important to get off that combine and uh, look, uh, look for harvest loss, count for harvest loss. There's a number of things you can adjust on your combine that could help with that. It might be the speed of your combine, but you want to kind of tweak your, your harvesting operation to, to make sure you're, uh, you're not getting uh, excessive harvest loss. And when you're getting off the combine, checking for that harvest loss, you want to you want to be looking in the different zones of the field behind that behind that header, in the, the center on both sides to, to to get an idea of what your total harvest loss is. So, things that are very critical to the success of direct harvest: uh, number one is that suitable upright variety. Number two is a very level field surface. Number three is good weed control which showed a couple examples of that here. Number four is a, is a suitable header. Uh, you really need a flex, a flex header. The flex drapers uh, seem to work the best. And you also need an operator uh, knowledgeable with adjustments, harvest speed, and um, checking harvest loss. So those are very important for the success of direct harvest. Had a lot of a lot of help in our in our research. Uh, Nebraska Dry Bean Commission supports it, and local industry, Kelly Bean Trinidad. I appreciate our growers, and and of course, uh, working with the Nebraska On Farm Research Network has just been uh, been really great. And and we have a grant with the Nebraska Dry Bean Commission to uh, work with direct harvest and dryable beans. So, with that, thank you for listening. And if there were some questions, I'd be willing to answer any of those.